Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. My name is Eliza Stoker, and I am your host. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews within which we explore how women, who happen to also be both executives and lawyers, navigate those boundaries that get placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we will hear a new story from a different woman about what that's like. I do have someone here with me today. Her name is Desiree Rawls Morrison. I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself and her role. So let's get started. Desiree, tell us what your title is and what that means. Sure. Hello. My name is Desiree Rolls Morrison. I am the Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary of Boston Scientific Corp. Um, what that basically means is that for, for our company, Boston Scientific, which is a medical device company, um, a global medical device company, we are um, I am responsible for the legal and compliance groups globally within the company. That sounds like a big job. How large is the team that you manage? So we have about 140 people um, on our team around the globe, and that includes um, all professionals. And so it's made up of lawyers, compliance professionals, um, um, and legal professionals. I know that this isn't your first role, right? No one steps out of law school into a general counsel position leading a team of over 100 professionals. So tell me a little bit about your career progression and, and what were you, how mindful were you of the decisions that you made as you went forward in your career about how to advance and where you wanted to go? Sure, uh, thank you. Uh, so. You know, I started like many lawyers in a um, at a law firm. Um, I started in a large law firm in Connecticut and really um, got my my legs in the litigation group. I was a litigator. I did a number of um, product liability, personal injury type cases, and I did that for about five years before deciding to go to a New York law firm. And at that point, I really wanted more sophisticated work. Um, and so I went to a New York law firm, but what I realized was while the work might have been a little bit more sophisticated, the job that I as a junior associate was given really wasn't. And so I was doing, you know, document review, bait stamping, the things that most junior associates do in a large New York law firm. And I did that um, for about a year and then decided to go in-house. And it's interesting, you know, at the time when I went in-house, this was in the, the late 90s, many of us went in-house because we thought we were going to get, you know, a, a much more normal work schedule. We wouldn't have to work weekends. We, we wouldn't have to work evenings. We might have to give up some intellectual curiosity in terms of the, the stimulation attached to the job. But it was the right move if you were a woman and you wanted to go into, um, you wanted to have a family. And that's, that was really exactly why I went into a, um, into uh, a company, went in-house, because 
I wanted to, to have children and like, but the only way to do that successfully as a lawyer would be in an in-house role. Um, I started my in-house career at Merck and I will just say, you know, what I've learned and I think what many of us have learned going in-house is that one, you still work weekends sometimes, you still sometimes <laughs> work, work, work at night for sure. Um, and, you know, you're, you're not giving up the intellectual stimulation for sure of, a, of an interesting, challenging job. Um, but I did it. I started my career at Merck. Um, I was at Merck for about eight years where I was a regulatory um, and product liability um, lawyer um, for a number of products in my, in my portfolio. Um, and then I went to Johnson and Johnson and I was there for nine years. Same, you know, a similar role responsible for the Pennsylvania companies at Johnson and Johnson and really progressed um, throughout that company. Uh, when I left J and J, I was the senior, um, I was the general counsel of the consumer sector and uh, then went on to a role at Behringer where I was the general counsel for US, um, the US business and then uh, eventually to um, here to Boston Scientific. You know, I, I wish I could say that I was mindful about the decisions that I made in terms of, you know, I had a plan and I followed the plan and that's what led me to where I am today. But that's, <laughs> that's not really how it happened. I don't know if it happens that way for anyone. It's funny because we all tell everybody to do that, but I don't know that that's how <laughs> it happened for us. You know, it, um, it didn't happen that way for me. But, you know, what I was mindful about was that I always wanted to learn and grow. And whenever I got to a place in a role where I didn't feel like I was continuing to grow and to learn and to develop, that's when I felt as though it was time for me to go. So I was never, you know, chasing the title or the money. In, in some places I went, I believe, you know, for a lateral move, um, there were certainly times in my career when I took a step back in salary, at least initially. Um, but I always moved because I wanted to continue to grow and to develop. And I didn't always feel like I was, was doing that in a current role. Did it feel risky to take a step back financially in pursuit of something that sounded like a fun new challenge? You know what, it didn't seem risky at the time, but, but I would say in retrospect, sure, it, it seems risky. I will tell you when I, when I took the salary, um, a step back in salary, it was early on in my career. And so I didn't have some of the financial pressures we have when we have family and, and, and um, children and homes and all of that. It was earlier in my career. The risky part for me in a, in a couple of my moves was I ended up commuting while my husband and my children stayed in our old residence. And it was never for longer than a nine month period before they were ready to move. Um, but I did that twice where we wanted our children to finish up a school year but I was starting in a new role in um, October and then November, you know, respectively for two different different roles. And that was that was a difficult um, a difficult prospect for me. And and you know, commuting generally, I would have worked in um, the new location from Monday through Thursday back home with my husband and children Friday through Sunday. And that's where I saw the risk because it was you know. Are my children going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Are we going to manage as a family? And can we can we make it through those those eight or nine months, whatever it was, and still have me in a new role where I'm contributing and developing and feel like I'm adding something to the new organization that I'm in? 
so much for the promise of going in-house for better work-life balance, it sounds like. Right. <laughs> yes, for sure. And, and, you know, I do think that we need to take risks in our career. You know, in retrospect, sure, you know, some of the things that I've done are risky. I certainly left um, each of my, my respective companies as a valued employee who had lots of potential in their minds, you know, for promotion within the company. Um, so it was risky to leave a company um, where I was known and well thought of and high potential and, you know, the company was invested in my future for a new, a new role. Um, but again, that's all in retrospect. At the time, it seemed, you know, interesting and exciting and, and certainly not a, not a risky prospect. But it is risk, and I would say to anybody who's sort of thinking about career, um, anybody, you know, if I had to say something to my younger self, it would be that. It would be don't be afraid to, to take risks and to step in outside of your comfort zone um, when you make career-based decisions. So you have touched on two very different kinds of risk. Um, I heard you talk about putting your family life at risk, um, jeopardizing mm -hmm. your own happiness outside of work. And then separately, I heard you talking about leaving behind a solid reputation that you had worked hard to build to go start over again and have to build a whole new reputation somewhere new. Which was scarier to, for you, the family risk, the happiness risk, or the reputational risk? Yeah, definitely the, the family risk was, was yeah. more risky, right? I mean, I think, you know, we, we love our families. That is why we do most of what we do, right? And, and you know, our children are, if you have children, you, you know, your children are more important to you than anything. And so, you know, for me, that certainly was the biggest risk. I, um, you know, but um, I also know that I'm someone that enjoys working and I'm a better mother and I'm a better spouse when I am working and I'm happy and fulfilled in my job and I feel as though I'm growing. I learned that about myself um, and, um, and I've come to embrace that. And so while, you know, I had to make other accommodations to um, make sure that they were still thriving and getting everything that they needed, um, you know, I, I felt like this was better for our family overall. And, you know, I will say at the end of the day, it wasn't a huge risk. I mean, they were, they were fine. They were better than fine. They're doing very well and they have wonderful perspectives um, of what it means to be a working woman and what it means to be a hardworking individual. Um, so, so I think it turned out, it turned out great, but um, that was certainly the scarier risk. I think in terms of going to a new company and having to start over and build that reputation, that's a, that is a difficult thing to do, um, but I think you have to have some level of confidence in yourself and your ability, and the fact that, you know, the reputation that you built at your old role, you can build that in your new role. And it may take time, you know, you're starting over, but you can do it. And, um, you know, if you do good work, you work hard, you demonstrate the, the, the leadership qualities that got you 
um, where where you were, um, where you are, then I think that you can certainly continue that trajectory in another company. And listen, in, in our in my industry, reputations um, travel outside of companies, and mm-hmm. word of mouth strong. And and you know, I've had employers at one position give me references. Um, to employers in another position, not because they wanted me to go, but because, you know, my reputation was strong. And so, you know, I think that that is something that we should all, um, you know, women in particular should have a level of confidence and that you don't have to be terrified to start over um, because, you know, know your value, know what you're worth and know what your strengths are. I have read that Part of why we don't see a higher percentage of women in the top echelons of corporate life is partly because women don't change jobs as frequently as men. So I think you're touching on something very important here. Um, so, so you, which kind of risk do you think might be preventing a woman from taking that next opportunity if it means leaving her current employer? Is it that fear of starting over, or is it something else entirely? Maybe. No, I think I think that's part of it. I think it's a fear of starting over. You know, many of us still suffer from the imposter syndrome, and so we're afraid that if we go somewhere else, you know, it'll will be exposed. Um, I think, you know, it's um, a little bit of having faith and confidence that working hard is enough and that at some point our, you know, people will look at us and value us for, for how hard we work and, and the product we put out. And, and that is important, don't get me wrong, but it's not the whole equation. And I think we as women tend to rely much more on that piece of the equation than some of the other factors such as, you know, networking and relationships that are also um, also at play. Has your family been helpful to you in your career? Do they help you make decisions and support you? They, they've been helpful from the standpoint of, of being very, very supportive. And, you know, I, I will tell you, I remember at one point when I was um, getting ready to leave Johnson & Johnson and moving to uh, Beringer and Goheim. And I remember sitting in the kitchen um, in my home crying. And um, I had already told um, my employer that I was leaving. And w- at that point was questioning, was I making the right decision? Because I was disrupting, you know, the school that my children went to. I was disrupt- disrupting the fact that they had both parents, you know, in the house together at the same time. Um, you know, everything that they had known, I was disrupting. We were moving, you know, from our doctors, from our church, from everything that was our stability. And I was was in the kitchen crying and and really just struggling with, have I just made the right decision? And my son came up to me and he saw me crying and he didn't even ask me, you know, why I was crying. I guess he knew and he was pretty young. He was, I guess at that point, he would have been, uh, he would have been like, I don't know, 12, maybe 11, 12. And he said to me, he said, mommy, don't cry. He said, we're we're going to be okay. We're all going to be back together in a couple months and you love us and we love you. And this is a good decision. And that was an 11 or 12 year old. And um, so that smart kid. And so that's the kind of support that I've gotten from them. I think they know that I'm, 
I'm better and happier when my my work life is a place that I feel comfortable in. Um, you know, in terms of other people, pe people how I get decisions made and people helping me with that. Um, I certainly have mentors, and I have reached out to mentors when I've thought about making career moves or career decisions. And you know, I've called and said, you know, is this a good decision? Should I should I be doing this? And they never tell me yes or no. Um, and that's universal. I have three that I kind of rely, have relied on for for many years for my career, and none of them give me the answer. But what they have, what they have been very good at is helping me to think through the issues to get to the answer that's right for me. And um, and I and I do have that network that I rely on absolutely for those kinds of things. Now, how did you find this network of? Are they all mentors, or do you categorize them somewhat differently? There are people who are mentors and people who are advisors. Tell me a little bit about this network. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. They could be mentors or advisors. I, I, I don't really think about it um, in terms of one versus the other. I call them all my mentors. Um, mm -hmm. I, I found them over time. I found them at very um, at different roles and at different times in my, my life. Um, but they all have brought something very different um, to the table. And so one is an African-American male who really helped me a lot with um, being comfortable with my authentic self within, you know, the workplace and being comfortable sometimes um, often being the only one in the room. Um, he helped me to kind of um, figure out how to be that that kind of leader, and and I looked up to him a lot, and still do, and and really tried to emulate um, different leadership qualities that I I admired in him. Another one is a woman who is a mother of three boys, and extremely successful um, in her career, but someone that I looked up to, and again admired in terms of how she was managing her personal life as well as her professional life. In, in a very successful way. She had, she had children who were well-adjusted and who were happy and healthy, and, and, you know, that's what I wanted. And she was also very happy professionally, which is also what I wanted. So um, she's someone that I've gone to when I've struggled with some of the decisions that I talked about with regard to how they would manage if I was, was going to be traveling back and forth. Um, and that sort of thing, and was also very helpful. And then I had another woman who was very used to often being what I call the unicorn in the room, right? And um, struggling to you know, figure out sometimes, how do I get my voice heard? How do I write between um, being effective and authentic at the same time? And, and how, do I, how do I do that successfully? And so um, I've often um, gone to her for for advice and insight on that as well. So I found them all at different times. They all really serve different purposes. Um, but like I said, you know, universally, I think, you know, there is a consistency, which is they never tell me the answer, they, but they always help to lead me to thinking about things differently and, and thinking about things in a way that allows me to process it and get to an answer myself. So, I want to come back to something very interesting you alluded to in your response. First of all, I love the unicorn. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, so when you feel like you're the only one in the room, 
is that more often about gender or race or some combination? Yeah, it's, it's usually a combination. You know, I, this is an interesting question because it's hard for me to really separate the two because they're not separate for me. It's all, you know, it, it, I'm both. <laughs> you are right? who you I'm are. Both. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm um, you know, a black female and, and that is what it is. I will tell you um, that more and more um, there are women, other women in the room with me, but rarely. Um, is there another, um, you know, um, another black professional in the room, male or female? And so, um, so, so, you know, it, it could be race more than gender. Um, but, but even with respect to gender, there's not a lot of us. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I use the word unicorn and I, I, I use it really intentionally, right? Because one of the things that I've noticed throughout my career, um, a little bit with myself and certainly with other people as well, is in the beginning, you know, you're this unicorn and everybody like looks at the unicorn in awe and it's it's unique and it's different and it's so um, great, right? And it's, but it's the only one, right? And that's, that's okay for a little while, but over time, and, and you know, I'll speak personally over the course of, you know, a 25 year career, um, it, it gets old. Um, you look around the room and you see, well, wait, the deers have other deers and the cows have other cows. <laughs> and, you know, wait, I want other people with me to yeah. talk to and, you know, to share views with and ideas. And, you know, even if it's just to talk about, you know, where do you get your hair done and where do you, you know, go to shop and, and those sorts of things. And so, you know, it is a short term um, interesting um, prospect, um, but, you know, in the long term, no one wants to be the unicorn. We want and need more people like us around the table. And, you know, that's just speaking from the point of view of how does the individual feel? But I think we all also know and appreciate today how much value um, comes from diversity. And that is, you know, value that translates into revenue and dollars, certainly in a business like mine. Absolutely. And, and I'm familiar with the saying that it's lonely at the top. And when you're leading a group as large as yours, you're certainly at the top. But it sounds like there's more than one form of, I don't know if loneliness is the wrong word, but you're a unicorn in more than one way. You're a unicorn because of your job and you're a unicorn because of your demographic. Is that fair? Correct. Yes, that's very fair. So I'm curious, and I don't know how to articulate such a thing, but I'm curious to hear more about the interplay between those two concepts. I don't know that being the one in charge automatically resolves the other. Um, mm -hmm. do, yeah, do you feel like your leadership is perhaps received differently? Um, I, I don't think my leadership is perceived differently, no. I, but I do think, you know, to your point, um, when you are a leader of a team in an organization, right, you have great relationships with people in, it, it, on your team, um, hopefully, right, if you're good at your role. Hopefully. But, then, but <laughs> right. But they're, they're not necessarily friendships. And there are things that, um, because you're on top, right, there are certainly things that you cannot share with people in your group. 
Um, similarly, I would say, you know, when you are the only one um, that looks like you around the table, that also leads to the sense of loneliness. I think, I think the way that I think about it is um, it's important to build the network of individuals outside of your um, outside of your organization. And um, I have a strong network of individuals who are outside of my organization. Um, for, for women lawyers, um, there's a great um, organization, a, a great um, um, conference that just ended last week, which is the Corporate Council of Women of Color. And that is a great meeting to go to because you look around the room and there's anywhere between 1,000 to 1,500 other women that look like you. And you realize, you know what, I am not alone, right? This might be lonely at times, but I'm not alone. There are a whole bunch of people out here like me. And that's how you start to develop your network of people that are maybe outside of your organization, but either at the same, you know, level at you, as you and or, you know, they share, um, you know, they share many attributes as you. So. So that's how, you know, I kind of think about it. I don't think it's impacted my leadership at all, except to the extent that um, I'm someone who believes in diversity and understand and appreciates the value of inclusion. And so, you know, that may be gender, it may be race, but it may be lots of other um, attributes associated with diversity. And bringing that out in people, helping them to understand what I value about you is what makes you different and I want to hear your voice. I don't want you at the table just because I want you to agree with the status quo. That's how, you know, who I am, I think, has translated into the kind of leader that I am. So whether it's your current role or thinking about roles you've held in the past, how did you know when you were in the right role? What did it feel like? Um, <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I think when I was in the right role had a lot to do with the work that I was doing, um, whether I felt as though I was growing and learning and excited and engaged about what I was doing, um, and the people that I was working with, and, and maybe even more importantly, the culture that I was doing it in. And um, sometimes I felt like it was the right role and it was for time. And then I um, evolved and grew out of that role. And, and in some cases that meant I also grew out of the company. But um, I will say that right now, I feel like I have the best of everything. I am in a role that I love where everything is new and different every day. Um, which, which challenges me and helps me to kind of think differently and, and grow and develop. Um, I'm with an executive leadership team of peers that um, I, I value and I enjoy working with. They're, they're smart and hardworking and, um, you know, I, I like working with them. We have fun. I have an excellent team of uh, 140 professionals, and so I couldn't ask for more. There's no dysfunction there. They are high performing. They are, they know their roles. They are excited to do their roles. They're excited to win. They're excited to help me. 
um, be successful. And so I really couldn't ask for more there. And then I would say, lastly, is the culture. I'm in a company whose culture and whose core values are consistent with my own core values. And that's really important. I mean, you can work in a company where the values aren't consistent with your own and you can survive and collect a, a paycheck, but it feels very, very different when you are in a company and you appreciate what they're doing, you, you know, see the value that they are bringing to the patients or the consumers that they're servicing, and you, what you believe in is consistent with what the company believes in and what the company, um, how the company behaves and, um, and manifests and demonstrates those, those values. And so I would say I have all of those today, and I am so fortunate and I feel so blessed to be in the position that I'm in now because I do feel like it is the result of, you know, a 25-year career and everything has come together at, at, at this point, um, finally. That, that's amazing. I just want to take a moment and congratulate you on that. Because for 25 years, you. you've worked hard and you've taken risks and you've made tough decisions. And I would imagine that that's, it must feel good to be able to say that about where you've arrived. It does. You know, you know, we all, um, as we go through our careers, there's things that we all, you know, sacrifice or we all um, wish maybe was different, right? And there are some of those things that you wish were different, but you can live with them the way they are. And then there are things that are, you know, you wish were different and you can't live with them the way that they are. And, you know, often that's how we move through our career or, or, or stay where we are. And, um, you know, some of those, those companies, those situations, some, some, some places and, and times when I found myself in were, were harder or more challenging than others, but it is, it does feel really good to be at a place where I feel like um, I finally have arrived, it all has come together, and, um, you know, I don't want to go anywhere. I'd love to retire, I want to retire here, and, um, and just, you know, I'm happy with how things are. I'm really happy. So no one achieves the level of success that you've achieved without being able to edit or control themselves. Um, are there moments where you find yourself feeling edited by others or perhaps by your demographic? Like, I might need to alter my delivery of this idea or I might need to find a specific way to broach this topic. And do you ever feel like those constraints are coming not just from a place of good business and good leadership, but because of what you look like and who you are as a demographic. Yeah, so this is a this is a really good question. It, it's one where I think you know what it'd be great if I had a therapist who could like analyze me and tell me and give me the Because this is such a good question. I mean, listen, I I definitely feel as though you know, and, and I, I say this in my organization, there is a. Desiree that they all know, and then there's a Saturday night Desiree, right? <laughs> and I always say, you know, unfortunately, my job people will never meet the Saturday night Desiree. Unfortunately, I say because she's really fun and, you know, we all <laughs> like her. But, but that is a part of me that's different than the work part of me. Um, having said that, I still am extremely authentic at work. 
and you know who you see is who I am, and it's a part of me. The reason why I think this is such a different, such an interesting question, is because I'm someone who grew up in a town where my family was the only family of color in that town. And when I was in school, my brother's six years younger than me. I was the only person of color in my school. And so, and then, you know, went on to Wesleyan, um, then went, you know, to Harvard Law School, and then, you know, into the corporate world, where then found myself um, the, as the only person. And so, the, this, this dichotomy of Desiree, you know, at work, and, and it's not even Desiree at work, it might also be Desiree at my children's school events, and Desiree, you know, with, um, with the PTA, and, and that Desiree is very much a part of me, um, and so much so, and she's been, you know, a part of me since I was a child, that she is me. Um, it's just another version of me, and, and I think we all kind of have that, um, you know, that, that we really let our hair down maybe in certain environments, but otherwise we are cognizant of the environment that we're in, and we do some modulating of our, um, you know, of our language and our um, views. It doesn't mean we don't express our views, but we might express them differently than we would if we were somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think the answer to your question is sure, I must, I must do some of that, but it, it honestly doesn't feel like, um, it doesn't feel like I'm filtering or becoming a different person in the workplace. And maybe part of that is because I've been in a role where I've been the only one for so long that it's it's part of who I am at this point. Do you feel like perhaps you would have been less successful if you had felt pressure and given into that pressure to change away from who you authentically are? Sure, I, I do. You know, I think and, and, you know, was this always the case? Maybe not. I, you know, it's possible that early in my career, um, when, you know, there were even fewer of us, people wanted you to, to, to change your behavior and they didn't care that you weren't being your authentic self because <laughs> they wanted you, because they wanted you to fit within a mold, right? I think that's changed today. I think today, is very different than when I started in the legal profession in 1992, um, where we talk a lot today about people bringing their authentic selves to work, and we try to create environments and cultures where they can feel free to do that. And um, that wasn't always the case, but it's certainly the case today. Um, and, you know, I do think that um, if I, had to be someone other than who I really was, I probably wouldn't have been um, as successful as I am today. And part of that is because you can't pretend to be someone else forever, right? And at some point, you know, the, the, the gig is up and, you know, so, and, or you're just miserable um, it, because nobody can pretend that they're someone else forever and be happy and thrive and, and, and live in that in that kind of environment. 
So, you know, I think where we are today, where we want people to be um, their authentic selves, we encourage that and we actually find a value in it um, is a much better place for all of us professionally. So on that note, what, what advice would you like to give to any woman who might be listening um, and contemplating their own career and their own actions, what advice would you want to share? Yeah, I think the, the primary piece of advice I would, I would share would be pause and think about your career. Think about what you want and think about what's important to you. And, you know, I sort of over time has, have kind of stumbled into what's important to me. Right, when I wasn't growing and developing anymore, I learned that was important to me. When I was in a culture that wasn't a, a, a supportive culture and wasn't one where I felt as though the values were consistent with my own, I learned that that was important to me. Um, I would encourage people to kind of, you know, don't follow my path or anyone else's path. You know, I know I've made some decisions and some sacrifices that aren't right for others. Um, and I truly understand that and I appreciate it. But I would say, you know, what I would encourage everyone to do is to stop and think about what is important to you. If you're currently in a role, think about what do I like about this and why do I like it? If, I, if there are pieces of this that I don't like, what is that and why is that? And don't sell yourself short, you know, that role and that place and that culture and those values and, you know, the environment that lets you be who you are, that exists out there. It might take a little bit of um, trial and error, it, but, but it definitely requires that you spend some time and think about, about it. And, and that's what I would encourage people to do, do some self-reflection and just really think about what you, what you want and what you think is important to you. This has been Between the Legal Lines. And you've just heard from Desiree Roz Morrison, Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Boston Scientific. I'm Eliza Stoker from Major Lindsay in Africa. Thank you for listening. Tune in next month for a new story from another woman successfully operating between the legal lines. If you'd like to be interviewed, please contact me at eStoker at MLAglobal.com. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.